Well, let's talk about shepherding your children and your grandchildren. Raise your hand if you have kids. Raise your hand if you have grandkids. Raise your hand if you like all your kids. No. All right. Hopefully all of you. There's a book that just came out by the Scrogans uh, about it's called Full Circle Parenting. I've been reading it, but they got a great line in there where he simply writes, parenting isn't for wimps. And I think if you've been a parent for more than five seconds, you're like, yep, he's right on that. Parenting isn't for wimps. So as we talk about cultivating this atmosphere where we are shepherding our own hearts, shepherding our wives, shepherding our children, just as we talk about the wives, we understand that we cannot do this in and of ourselves. We cannot do this in our own strength. We are completely dependent on the Lord for all of this. And so for this biblical example of what it looks like to shepherd our children, I want to look at what is probably the most popular passage when you're talking about discipling your children or family worship, and that's in Deuteronomy 6. And I think as we look at this, you'll see why it's such a popular passage. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 During the Old Testament days, that was one of the most quoted scriptures, one of the most known scriptures in the New Testament. It continued to be that. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted this scripture. They expected him to quote this scripture. And so we continue to lean on this passage that God has given us even today. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, the first word of verse 4 is here, as in to listen. And the word here in Hebrew is, someone just said it, Shema, Shema, right? And so as it talks about having the word of God in your house and on your doorpost, a lot of Jewish people during the Old and New Testament times, they would have this passage in the Hebrew and they would actually have it over their doorpost. And even still today, some Jewish people, if you go into their home, they'll have this passage over their front door either in Hebrew or maybe they'll just say Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, or sometimes they'll have a little plaque with the Hebrew word Shema. And that's the first word of the passage. And when they would say Shema, they would be referring to the entire passage. But let's see what this passage says, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So it starts with this great theological statement. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's this doctrinal truth because if we're going to shepherd our own hearts, our wives, our children, we have to first be firmly founded in the word and the doctrine of God. I've heard people in our day and age say things like, I love Jesus. I don't need theology. Like, what are you talking about? What planet do you live on? You know, that's like saying, I love my wife. I don't need to know anything about her. I mean, come on. That doesn't fly, right? Right. 
If we love Jesus, then we want to know him and how has he made himself known to us, but through the word of God. Those who truly love Jesus love his word. They delight in his word. The longest chapter in the whole book of Bible is Psalm 119, and the heart of that chapter is David just saying over and over again how good the word of God is, how he delights in his law, he delights in his commands, he delights in his statutes. Godly men have a heart for the word of God. It's not enough to say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't have time for the Bible. That doesn't make sense. And so it starts with this theological statement because godly men, before they shepherd their children, they're first going to be firmly founded in the word of God. We're going to pursue the word of God, read the word, study the word, listen to the word of God. It's never been easier than it is today. Family worship became almost non-existent during the Middle Ages. And the primary reason was because most of the adult men during that time were illiterate, and those that could read didn't have a Bible. And so family worship almost disappeared during the Middle Ages. You guys can read. You guys have Bibles. You have Bibles in your language. You have Bibles of 30 different versions. You have an app on your phone, or you could, that has a Bible in so many different versions, so many different languages. You have podcasts where they're teaching you the Word of God. You have apps with devotions and blogs about the Word of God. You have YouTube sermons and right now media. I mean, it's never been easier to saturate yourself with the Word of God than it is today in our culture. That is a blessing. Let us not take it for granted when you go home and you see six Bibles in English on your bookshelf. There was generations before us where that would have been the most priceless thing they could imagine ever holding. There's brothers and sisters in Christ today around the world that don't have a Bible and give anything to have a Bible. There's house churches in Southeast Asia where they have one Bible for the entire community. They take turns. Who gets to take it home and have it for the week? And they love it when it's their turn. So the first thing I see in the Shema is this great call to the doctrines of God starting by affirming that there is only one true living God. And we should love him in verse 5 with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. This is why we started last night with shepherding our own heart. Because before it talks about teaching your children, it calls us to the great commandment. If we're going to be men who shepherd our children and grandchildren, we have to be great commandment families to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the greatest commandment. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then he quoted Leviticus 19, and love your neighbor as yourself. Are we great commandment families? Do we love God? Do we pursue him like a deer that panteth for the water so my soul longeth after thee? Is that our heart? Is that our passion? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. And here we go. Let's talk about shepherding our children. Verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So first, we shepherd our own heart. We've got the word of God imprinted on our heart. And then it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So here's the simplest way to say this. Listen, listen. If you have children, you are commanded by God to teach them the word of God. That's the simplest way we can put it. It's not a take it or leave it. It's not an option. It's not a model of ministry. It's not for some people, but maybe it's not for me, or that wouldn't really work in my house. Listen, if you are a Christian man, God has commanded you 
to teach the word of God to your kids. Now, you might say that looks different in my home. Okay. For some people, that means might mean a devotion every single morning. Other people might say it's dinner time devotion. Other people might say, you know, two times a week I'm getting them into the Word of God. It might look different, but listen, let's at least all agree that the Bible commands fathers to teach the Word of God to their kids. And it says to teach them diligently. There's a guy named Jay Struther that uh, writes a lot about family ministry, and he did some work there on the Hebrew of teach them diligently. And he says that that phrase can best be translated as chisel it into their hearts. Chisel the word of God into their hearts. And that's why the first C there in our notes is that we are to chisel the word of God into our hearts. Imagine, have you ever seen wet cement? And you come across wet cement, and you can write your initials in it, which construction workers, they hate this, right? But you can. You can write your name in it or you can do your handprint. Have you ever done that? And if you do it and no one, you know, fixes it, once the cement hardens, it's there forever, forever, right? You can go back 20 years later and be like, ha ha, look what I did. I can't believe I did that. That was awesome. Uh, The hearts of our children are like this wet cement and we have this great opportunity to impress the word of God into their hearts so that as they grow up, that is firmly rooted there forever. Chisel the word of God into the hearts. When's the last time you looked at your children, your grandchildren, and you thought about their hearts and how vulnerable they are and how we have this great opportunity to impress the truth of God and the words of God and the commands of God in their heart? Are we being faithful in that? To chisel it into their hearts. Now, some of you I know are empty nesters. Your children are grown and they've left. Maybe they're in college. Maybe they're older. Some of y'all, they've gotten married and had kids. How many of y'all are empty nesters? Raise your hand. How many of y'all are grandparents? Raise your hand. Yeah. Did you know that you still have a great, beautiful role to play in the discipleship of your children and your grandchildren? Here's one example for our empty nesters. is, is from Job. If you've ever read the book of Job in the Bible, you know that in Job chapter 4, he has a big family. Not as big as yours, brother, but he's got a big family, right? <laughs> Smaller than yours, bigger than mine, somewhere in the middle. But he's got a big family, and, but he's an empty nester. They're grown. And then they go to this son's house, and then this brother's house, and this sister's house, and they have these parties. And in Job chapter 1, we find him making sacrifice, not just for his own sin, but for the sins of his children, because maybe while they are out, they might have sinned. Here's another way to put it. We find Job as the empty nester interceding for his grown children. If you're an empty nester, here's my greatest encouragement to you as you think about how, how to be a spiritual shepherd leader for your grown children. Be a Job who intercedes for them in prayer regularly. And I know most of you, you're like, man, you had no idea how much I pray for my kids. And I get that. But Job gives us a great example that even when we're empty nesters, even when our kids are grown, we have this great calling to be these intercessory prayer warriors for our grown children, to be on our face before the Lord. I got a buddy in Houston, and when he got to college, he lost his mind. He had grown up in the church. Everybody had taught him the word of God. He got to college, and he threw it all away, and he just pursued the worldly life, and he's partying. He's into everything from sex to drugs to maybe even rock and roll. I don't know, but he's in it all. And his mom is heartbroken, and she starts to hear these stories. She became like a Job. And she buried her face in the cushion of the couch, 
every morning, every afternoon, every night, interceding for him, praying for him. She didn't have him in her home all day, every day. She couldn't lead him in devotion and discipleship and worship like she wanted to. She didn't even get to talk to him on the phone hardly at all, but she buried her face and interceded in prayer for him, and God used the prayers of his mother to bring him back to the Lord, and today he's serving as a deacon in his church, leading his wife, leading his kids, discipling them. Don't ever underestimate the power of your prayers. Don't ever underestimate how God can use a godly man interceding for his grown children. We have another great example for us grandparents. When Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith with his first with your mother, Eunice, but before that, your grandmother, Lois. And Paul reminds Timothy that you have, in chapter 3, he says, you've known the sacred scripture since childhood, continuing what you've been taught. Since childhood, he had a mom and a grandmother who taught him diligently the word of God, chiseled it into stone, impressed it into his heart. Grandparents, you have an opportunity when you're with your grandchildren to point them to God's word, to teach them God's word. You have an opportunity when you're driving with your grandkids and you see a beautiful sunset to point it out and say, look at God's beautiful creation. You have an opportunity when you're driving with your grandkids to have worship music playing in the car. You have an opportunity when your grandkids spend the night at your house, you put them in the bed to pray with them and over them out loud before they go to sleep. You have an opportunity when y'all sit down at the dinner table to open up the word of God and say, hey, before we eat, let me read you what I read in my devotion this morning and to read them the word of God. Grandparents, you have a great, awesome opportunity to continue to chisel the word of God into the hearts of your grandchildren. It's weird to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, to teach the word of God diligently to our children. And then we cultivate these rhythms of family worship. Look at the next part of the Shema. It says, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It doesn't say Everybody needs to have family worship at 6 p.m. every single night. It's not that rigid. It more paints this picture of these consistent, regular rhythms of family worship in the morning, in the afternoon, and when you're walking around, and in the evening when you lie down. I know people, they have great family worship at breakfast. They have great family worship in the afternoon. On on the way to the baseball practice, they have great gospel conversations. They do it at night. They do it when they pick them up from school. They do it right before sleep. There's a million different times in your day and schedule where we can cultivate rhythms of family worship consistently, not randomly, but consistently and faithfully in our lives. I want to show you a quick illustration here. Let me get two volunteers. Come up here. Who do I got? I need two guys, any of y'all. All right, come up here, brother. One more. What do we got? All right, come on up here. All right, you come to this side. You got a little bit more work. Yeah, you don't get to eat them. Uh, you can eat them later. You come over here. All right, so hold up this bag for everybody. And if you would, open that bag and just pour in half into that bucket. Would you do that? Just half of that bag in that bucket. All right, and then what, oh, hold up the bags you got over here. What do you got? You got a few, two, yeah. You got some more, yeah. All right, pour those into the bucket. If you need two buckets, we got two. If they fit in one, we got, you can do it in one. But if you'll start pouring in those, you'll start pouring into this one. That's half? All right, you can have the other half. There you go. All right, that's all you got to do. You can go sit down. All right, so this is the first one. Some M&Ms here. There you go. Yeah, you're going to need two buckets, I think. 
All right, so I think half of that family size jumbo bag is, is about 45, 50 M&Ms. So we're not going to count them, but we're going to assume this is about 50 M&Ms if their serving size on their back of their bag is correct. And then we got a little bit more than 50 over here. I should have given you a pair of scissors over there to cut the bag. You got it. It's going to fit in one bucket. Oh, good. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. All right. You can sit down. Great job. You don't get any M&Ms. I'm sorry. Hey, you can have the whole bucket when we're done. But you got to eat it here. You can't bring it home. All right. So over here, we got about 50 M&Ms. And over here, we have anywhere between three and 4,000 M&Ms. That's the difference there. All right. So some of you math majors, you're like, I already counted. I know you're right. All right. There's a guy that did some research, and he said that if you have a child or a teenager who's actively involved in church, like they come most Wednesday nights, most Sunday mornings, they're, they're pretty faithful, that in any given year, they're going to receive between 40 and 50 hours of biblical instruction here at the church house. But at home, they have an opportunity to receive up to 3,000 hours of biblical instruction in your house. Now listen, I don't say that to underestimate the power of these. This 40 to 50 hours at the church house are invaluable. We can never sacrifice this because they're being discipled by other godly men and women. They're having community with other Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. This is invaluable. I love the local church and we have to have our kids in the local church. They need these 40, 50 hours. I was saved at church at 18 years old because godly men were pouring the gospel into me 50 hours every single year of my life. So they have to have that. But why in the world will we sacrifice the opportunity of these other 3,000 hours they could be having of discipleship? What if just half of this was used for family discipleship? What if even a quarter of this every year was used to pour the word of God into them, to chisel the word of God into their heart. This is what happens when we cultivate regular rhythms of family worship in the home. These hours become fruitful hours, and these partner together. And God uses both to lead our kids to one day be godly shepherds themselves. When we cultivate regular rhythms of family worship in our house, we are saying we're going to dedicate these hours in the home to the Lord. That's what it looks like to shepherd your children. I told you that throughout family worship or throughout church history, family worship ha has been prominent in the church. Not always. Middle ages, it almost disappeared. In 1909, one pastor wrote, hey, I think family worship is pretty much non-existent today. But there was these sort of golden ages of family worship, early church history with the reformers, with the Puritans, I think there's actually a resurgence of family worship happening right now in our day and age. But, you know, Blair said that I wrote my dissertation on Richard Baxter. And Richard Baxter, I know many of you are familiar with him, but he was a Puritan pastor in Kidderminster, England in the 1600s. He was born right like a year after William Shakespeare died. And so that's kind of his timeline there, one of the late Puritans. And he pastored his church very faithfully. But when he came to Kidderminster, one historian said, if I were to name one town that I would not want to go in that day and age as a pastor, I would have named Kidderminster. And he also said, if I were to name one pastor that probably could not do very good work in Kidderminster, I would have said Richard Baxter. 
And yet if I were to name one pastor in one town where we saw some of the most fruitful ministry ever, I would say it was through Richard Baxter and Kidderminster. Because when Baxter came to this town, he later wrote that almost no families in the church and in those streets practiced family worship. But after 15 years of cultivating a passion for family worship, of preaching the Shema, of going into their homes and teaching them how to worship together at families. After 15 years, Baxter was able to say, there are streets here in our town where every single family is practicing family worship. Can you imagine if 10 years from now, five years from now, one year from now, we could say the same about the families and the neighborhoods of this church? What if we could say at Christ's Covenant Church, every single man leads his family in family worship? They cultivate these regular rhythms of family worship. Now, look, I'm not saying we have to add extra M&Ms to this bucket. I'm not saying, man, I know y'all are busy, but you're just going to have to create some more time, more hours. I'm saying you already have the hours to do this. You just have to add intentionality to the M&Ms you already have, to the hours you already have. Instead of picking up your kids from school and just driving straight home, You know, pick them up and on the way home, talk about the Lord. Listen to worship music. Ask them how you can be praying for them. Instead of telling them just to go to bed, say, hey, right before you go to bed, let's pray together. Instead of eating dinner together in front of the TV, eat dinner together at the table and have a family devotion. I believe most families already have little pockets in their schedule that if they would just add intentionality to that, they could cultivate regular rhythms of family worship when they sit down, when they rise, when they walk along the way, when they lay down at night, throughout the day, just finding those moments to have spiritual conversations, to talk about the word of God, to chisel the word of God into their hearts, to impress it into that wet cement so that when they grow up, they will be firmly founded in the word of God. And listen, parents, biblically, this should be our greatest prayer. And I think part of the reason why Christian families aren't leading in family worship because that's not always the greatest prayer. In fact, Barna Research did a survey of Christian parents to ask them, what's your greatest hope for your children? And the majority, the number one answer was a good education. The third answer was a consistent relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are Christian parents but in 3 John verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. That should be our greatest joy. That should be our greatest prayer. What value is a good education if they don't know the Lord? What value is a successful career if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Who cares if they're starting on varsity, if they're living in sin? Our greatest hope, our number one prayer, our greatest joy for our children, for our grandchildren should simply be that they follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is our greatest hope and it is our greatest prayer, then are we really gonna just sacrifice 3,000 hours a year and just say the church will take care of discipling them? Or are we gonna look at Deuteronomy 6 and say, wait a second, I have to shepherd them too. I have to teach them the word of God. Praise God for the church. Praise God for the discipleship they received there but I'm going to disciple them at home as well. I'm going to cultivate rhythms of family worship. Charles Spurgeon was one of the busiest people maybe who's ever lived. If anybody would have had it out for family worship based on how busy they were, 
It was Spurgeon. In fact, Donald Whitney wrote his dissertation on Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Whitney wrote about Spurgeon's schedule. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon, pastor in the 1800s in England, he pastored the largest evangelical church in the world at that time with more than 6,000 active members. That's a big church today. Back then, it was the only church that big and everybody knew it. He preached almost every day. Blair, seven sermons a week? Come on. Preached almost every day. He edited his sermons for weekly publications. He produced the largest collection of works by any single author in English. He wrote 120 books. That's one for every four months of his entire adult life. Can you imagine every four months another book gets published? My goodness. He uh, presided over 66 different ministries including a college that he founded. He edited a monthly magazine. You've heard of The Sword and the Trowel. He typically would read five books a week. This isn't listening to audio books. He didn't have audio books back then. And he wrote with a dip pen 500 handwritten letters every week. So without a computer, without the internet, without Amazon or Kindle or any of those things, He's reading, he's writing, he's preaching, he's leading 66 ministries, the largest church, and guess what he would do every night at 6 p.m.? Every single night at 6 p.m., he sat down at his table with his wife and his twin boys, and he led them in family worship. Now, if there would have been anybody who could have told his wife, you know, I'm just a little too busy tonight, and they would have understood, surely it was Spurgeon. Now, listen, guys, this isn't to make us feel bad about, man, I've been really lazy. No, it's supposed to make us feel like, okay, maybe this is possible. Maybe by the power of Christ or the power of the Holy Spirit, if I would just add intentionality to the hours and M&Ms he's already given me in the home, maybe my house, too, could have regular rhythms of family worship. And maybe Christ's Covenant Church could be the church today that can say every man in our church leads his family in family worship. Can we shepherd them in family worship? One of the practical notes I gave you there in our uh, kind of outline is that as we're doing this, if we're going to shepherd our children well, I believe we need to create an atmosphere of grace. Create an atmosphere of grace. I think a lot of times we use what I would call whack-a-mole parenting. You ever seen that game, Whack-A-Mole, like at the carnival or Chuck E. Cheese? You stand there at the hammer, and a little mole comes out of the hole, and you whack, and then this mole comes out of this hole, and you whack, and you're trying to keep up, and then they start popping out of the holes real fast, and you're just whacking. Have y'all played this game? And a lot of times, that's how we do our parenting, Whack-A-Mole. What we do is we're not really uh, investing in them or discipling them proactively. It's just reactive parents. We wait till a problem comes up, and then we whack it with a hammer. We wait till another problem comes up, and then we slam our hammer down on that. And so one, we're just being reactive to every problem that comes. But two, our parenting is absent of any grace. We're coming at it with this domineering hammer. We're yelling. One time, uh, my wife had left the house and for like 20 minutes to go to the grocery store. When she left, everything was fine. I'm sitting with the kids. We're playing a game. Everybody's laughing. She leaves the house. 20 minutes later, she comes back. Every kid is in timeout, and they're all crying. <laughs> and she's looking at me. She has milk and eggs. She's like, 20 minutes? What happened? 
And I'm like, I don't know. But in the 20 minutes, one kid did something. I started yelling at them. Another kid did something. I started yelling at them. A third kid did something. I'm yelling at them. He's saying, you shouldn't yell at him. I'm yelling at him for telling me not to yell. And I'm just yelling at all three of them. I put them on timeout. And I was like, what am I doing? It was terrible parenting. And so that night, we sat down at the table. And I you know, had my Bible there. I always keep a Bible right by the table to remind me about family worship. And I get the Bible, and I'm so convicted. I'm like, how am I about to lead this family in family worship? So I said, all right, guys, listen, for our family worship tonight, I just want to confess and repent of my sin and ask for your forgiveness. So I'm, and my kids, they're so sweet. They're like, Daddy, no, you didn't do anything wrong. We're the ones that should be apologizing. I'm like, no, I did sin. And they're telling me no. So now I'm in this position where I'm like, I have to prove to you that I did, in fact, sin. So that became our family devotion. So I went to Galatians 5, and I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to read the fruit of the Spirit, and I want you to tell me which part of the fruit of the Spirit I exhibited today in my parenting. I said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I said, was I loving? They're like, oh. I said, joy. They're like, ah. I said, peace. They're like, nope, not a chance. (laughs) Patience. They're like, no patience. Kindness. I don't know. You weren't really kind. Goodness. No, that wasn't good. Faithfulness. I don't know. Gentleness. Of course not. Self-control. They're like, oh, not even a chance. I said, so was I led by the Holy Spirit? They're like, no. I said, let's go up a little bit in that chapter. Deeds of the flesh. I said, here's deeds of the flesh. Paul writes, outburst of anger. And they said, you got one, dad. I, I said, that's the wrong list to get one. And then, and then one of my kids at me said, I, I guess you did sin. I said, I guess I did. And so I asked for the forgiveness. But again, I've learned that if we're going to shepherd our kids, we can't have this reactive, hammering, whack-a-mole parenting. We must create this atmosphere of grace. There must be grace in our parenting, grace when they sin, grace when they disobey. Here's one thing I've learned. You know, it's great, and we're commanded to open up the Word of God and teach our children, disciple our children. But here's what I've learned. They're listening, but far more than them listening, they are watching us. Our kids and our grandkids are watching. Charles Spurgeon says, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and his doctrine disagree, the onlookers will accept his practice and reject his preaching. We must chisel the word of God into their hearts. We must cultivate rhythms of family worship. We must do it in an atmosphere of grace that allows us to model that for them because they're watching. And if what we teach doesn't match how we live, they're going to pay more attention to how we live than what we taught. They'll count our words as pennies and our actions as dollars, Spurgeon says. And then the last thing I want to encourage you with today is that as we chisel the word of God into their hearts, as we cultivate these regular rhythms of family worship, as we parent with this atmosphere of grace, let us commission the next generation. Let us commission the next generation and send them out. There's this example. If you have your Bibles, you flip over to Matthew 4. I want to show you. The truth of it is, guys, the leaders of tomorrow's church will probably be our kids and our grandkids, for better or for worse. And one day, whether it's today or 30 years from now or whenever it is, one day we'll die, we'll go home and be with the Lord. 
And the question is, have we left a legacy of faith behind us? Did we pass the baton to the next generation well? Did we disciple them and prepare them to where they can actually be sent out to be leaders in the church? Can we commission the next generation? You know, in Psalm 78, he has this great passion to tell the next generation the word of God so that they will set their hope in God, so they would remember his deeds and not forget his works. The question is, are we discipling our kids to where they too will remember the word of God, will remember their deeds? In Matthew chapter 4, there's this great passage in verse uh, 20, it's a, or 21, Jesus has just called Peter and Andrew to follow him. In verse 21, it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The culture in the jungle that I lived with, that, that people group, if a man had sons, he had a retirement plan. That was his 401k. If, if a man had sons, he was set for life because when he was older in his age and he couldn't go hunt and he couldn't fish and he couldn't fix his leaf roof of his hut when it was leaking, he had two sons, three sons. One guy had six strong sons to depend on, and that man was king in his village. He sat back. He ate like a king. He had the best hut because he had sons to do all that for him. And in the time of Jesus, it, it wasn't very different. They didn't have 401ks, but they had sons. And Zebedee was a man with two sons, James and John, and he had a fishing boat and a fishing business, and they're his retirement plan. And one day, they're going to be the ones doing all the fishing, taking care of all the business. He's going to be able to sit back and retire, but then Jesus comes and interrupts all of that. And Jesus looks at his sons and says, follow me. And it says they left their nets, they left their father, they left the boat, and they followed him immediately. And I think a lot about Zebedee in that moment. What was that like, Zebedee? You're standing there in the boat. Your sons quit the day early. Plus, they say we just quit, period. They drop their nets. They don't even put their nets up. You know how long it takes to get the nets put up? Get out of the boat, and they just start following Jesus. But he doesn't stop them, doesn't run after them. Later, we see his wife actually talking to Jesus about making sure James and John get a good spot in heaven. I'm praying for a generation of Zebedees that will gladly commission their children, and send them out to follow Jesus, wherever the Lord would lead them, that we wouldn't put our expectations on our kids and say, this is the kind of job you should get, this is the kind of degree you should get, this is where you should live, and make sure you're close to me and your mama, and make sure the grandkids are close. Then instead they say, you look, follow God, just, just however he leads, follow the Lord, and I'll support you. I'll be a Zebedee in your life. I'll stand there and cheer you on as you drop everything to follow after Jesus. So we ready to commission the next generation. Jim Elliott, famous missionary, sent out by the states to the jungles of Ecuador in the 50s, who later was martyred for his faith with four other missionaries. But God used their time there to later send his wife and others into that same tribe and lead them to Christ. But when Jim Elliott was called to missions, his parents struggled. Because Jim Elliott kind of had a good thing going here in the States. He was one of the smartest ones in his college. He was class president. He was young. He was smart. He was good looking. He could have done just about anything he wanted in the States. And instead, he says he's moving to the Amazon jungle in Ecuador to reach an unreached tribe with the gospel. And his parents were struggling. 
And so they actually sent him a letter, kind of sharing their feelings about it, their hesitations, encouraging him to think about serving somewhere else here in the States. And Jim Elliott, in his early 20s, wrote him back. And here's what Jim Elliott wrote to his parents. He says, Mom, Dad, remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were as an heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who has a quiver full of them. And what is the quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's host. He says the word of God says that you're blessed if you have a quiver full of children, which makes children arrows. And arrows are meant to be shot, so shoot me out straight at the enemy for God's glory. And they did. They commissioned him. They sent him out. When you get the family worship starter kits back there, one of the things you'll see in it is a family mission statement card. As we talk about being a Zebedee, as we talk about being a Joshua, Joshua who would say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I want to encourage you to think through what would be our mission for our house. And to write that down on a mission card, maybe even find a way to hang that up in your house so that your kids grow up seeing this is God's mission for our home. And as your kids grow up and you chisel the word of God into their hearts, one day you'll commission them and send them out. Let me pray for us. God, I do pray, Lord, that you would raise up a generation of Joshua's, a generation of Zebedee's, Lord Jesus, a generation of pace setters, that we would be godly men who shepherd our wives and shepherd our children and shepherd our grandchildren, that, Lord, you would create opportunities even today for us to chisel the word of God into their hearts to cultivate rhythms of family worship, Lord Jesus. We cannot do it apart from you, Lord. So I pray you'll give us all we need and let us be found faithful to your glory. Amen. Amen. Don't forget to get the uh, Family Worship Starter Kit before you leave. It has a week of family devotions. It has a prayer calendar for your family for a week. It has a prayer calendar for your family for a month. It has some family discussion questions. You can throw on the kitchen table and just get some spiritual conversations going. And it has those family mission statement cards. Uh, But one other practical challenge I'd give you real quick is when you're doing family worship, here's a question to ask yourself. Do your children or do your grandchildren know your testimony? Have you ever shared your testimony with them? That's a great way to begin getting these spiritual conversations going. It's just sometimes sit down with your kids or when you're driving with them, just tell them your testimony of how the Lord saved you. All right, Blair.